Welcome to the Wireless Noodle. I promised you weekly and we're back weekly. What have we got for you this week? I'll be talking a bit about some of the work that we've done on the clean dozen solution areas that I talked about last week. Just a brief run through a, a, a little bit extra on that. I'll talk through some of the work we did earlier this year on low earth orbit satellites and their impact on IoT or maybe lack of it. I'll also be looking into some of the work we did on communication service providers last year and specifically why they need to pivot to being hyperscale IoT connectivity providers. My name is Matt Hatton. This is The Wireless Noodle, your weekly guide to the impact of disruptive new technologies on business. First up, let's talk CSP IoT peer benchmarking. This is probably our, and certainly my, number one piece of research during the year. What we do is we analyse the relative strengths of, well last time it was a dozen, but could be more, leading providers of global IoT connectivity in areas like networks, platforms, vertical solutions, commercial strategy, and so on. A link to the press release for last year's report is available on the wirelessnoodle.com website. I'll post it there. Interesting thing here is that the market for cellular IoT connectivity has become a lot more complex and competitive recently. I talked about some of the M&A last week. In these circumstances, what we're seeing is communication service providers, CSPs, having to take a long, hard look at their strategies and approaches to the market. What they have is effectively two options. Find additional revenue streams or put in place systems and processes to cope with the competitive pressures and therefore downward pressure on pricing. The report that we published, the CSP IoT Peer Benchmarking Report, focuses on the core role of the CSP, i.e. the provision of connectivity. In order to succeed in that, they need to evolve to become what we've termed hyperscale IoT connectivity providers, imitating the hyperscale cloud providers. The assessment in the report focuses on whether the CSP is put in place or is in the process of putting in place the necessary capabilities to deliver scalable connectivity to support at least 10 times the number of devices that they're doing today and specifically at low cost points. Uh, we published a blog post which attracted quite a bit of attention uh, late last year that talked about $1 IoT, i.e. the idea that increasingly there will be a large rump of IoT devices that will be generating only a dollar of ARPU per year down from, well, typically we see about a dollar per month from most uh, most providers, some a little bit more, uh, some a little bit less, in fact, some a lot more. So they've got these price challenges to cope with. And what we're doing is we, we've rated the CSPs based on their aptitude as hyperscale IoT connectivity providers, i.e. able to cope with and deliver scalable cellular connectivity. And we do that across seven areas. First is efficient connectivity onboarding and management. This is about having scalable middleware platforms for connectivity management. The likes of Deutsche Telekom, Vodafone, Telenor and so on score quite well here. Second element is global connectivity support. This includes issues of 
footprint, considerations of regulatory compliance, ability to do intranetwork troubleshooting, local breakout, and much more. And again, the likes of Vodafone and Deutsche Telekom and Telenor score well here also, as does uh, as do some of the MVNOs, the likes of Core specifically, they're, they're included in the report. MVNOs are good at this stuff. They're used to dealing with requirements for connectivity in multiple geographies, so they tend to do, do pretty well. Third category is cloud integration. This is slightly more nebulous, pun intended. Uh, here we're on the subject of cloud connectors, which is also the subject of a uh, forthcoming Transform Insights report. Check out the website for more details. It should be published in time uh, for this podcast going out, so it should be sitting there, although at time of recording, it's not quite. And what we're talking about here is uh, providing a, a seamless way of delivering for data from IoT connections to the cloud. Verizon's pretty good here, as is the IoT MVNO Emnify, although it's not featured in the, in the CSP benchmarking report, but you know, we've done a lot of work around this area since that, and they, they do some interesting stuff. The subject of something called IoT Safe also comes up here, and I will talk more about IoT Safe in a later episode. That's It's about using the, the SIM as a route of trust for securing IoT uh, connectivity from device to, to cloud, but I will talk more about it another time. Another factor in determining whether an organization is a, a hyperscale IoT connectivity provider relates to the business organization, which is about running a streamlined and efficient organization. Uh, many of the CSPs that we feature, in fact, I think all of them, have established separate business units. This is a, a good start. After all, what you want is dedicated salespeople. You want dedicated teams focused on, on the IoT requirements. Uh, so that's an important thing. Again, MVNOs also tend to be pretty good in, in running a slick and streamlined operation. So uh, one to, uh, they, they tend to score pretty well there. We also can't ignore having a good roster of hyperscale access technologies. I'm going to talk about the concept of constrained IoT in a later podcast. The point is, there are technologies specifically designed for addressing constrained IoT, as in IoT devices deployed in a constrained way, having constraints of uh, power or cost of the device, cost of the connectivity. All those are, are important constraints. Low power wide area technologies, for instance. Now, the point is, decent operators need the full set. Moving on to another topic, scalability is also relevant to core networks. There's still quite a bit of room to move for CSPs to really take advantage of the ability to spin up, for instance, virtual core networks in different locations. There's a lot of interesting stuff happened in network function virtualization in the last few years and having cloud native network functions. Uh, for instance, uh, Aeris has uh, its uh, core network based in Google Cloud. Uh, AT&T has done a, a similar thing for it's having its, its 5G core network hosted in the cloud with AWS, if I remember rightly. The final topic is hardware. The final topic that we think of as, as the thing that defines whether an organization is a hyperscale IoT connectivity provider uh, relates to hardware. 
there is a massive increasing requirement to cross-optimize IoT connectivity and hardware uh, and application and, and, and cloud and every other element. Uh, but it's really connectivity and hardware that need to work hand in hand. And we're expecting to see a lot more sale of connectivity bundle with hardware and hardware bundle with connectivity over the next uh, few years. I wrote a, a great article for IoT Now recently that deals with this. And I will talk about this subject, this idea of um, cross-optimizing IoT on a later episode of the podcast. I'll put a link to the IoT Now article on the wirelessnoodle.com website. But the point is that if you really want to get to scale, you need to deliver both elements, hardware and connectivity. Now, who's good with hardware? AT&T and Verizon both are. Uh, Telefonica and Orange are also good with pre-integrated devices. Uh, the likes of Core is actually outstanding in terms of its device lifecycle management capability. Uh, fascinating and, and really laudable uh, capability there. Worth noting that there are two big emerging aspects of IoT connectivity around mobile private networks and 5G. We have a webinar coming up on the 26th of September where we'll be sharing our views on both aspects. The links are on the transformerinsights.com website to all our webinars. I will put up a link on the wirelessnoodle.com website as usual for that particular webinar. And also worth noting, uh, what I've talked about, about hyperscale IoT connectivity providers, we will revisit that for the communication service provider peer benchmarking in 2022 later on this year for that 2022 version of the report uh, that'll be out in q4 keep an eye out satellite iot well, satellites been used to connect iot devices for decades but it's seen a surge of interest in recent years particularly with the launch of constellations of thousands of low earth orbit leo satellites from the likes of SpaceX and Amazon's Project Kuiper. There are also dozens of smaller constellations of LEOs aimed at addressing specifically IoT, and in many cases starting to support the likes of some of the existing technologies, some of the terrestrial technologies like 5G, narrowband IoT, LoRaWAN, and other traditionally terrestrial techs. We recently published a couple of reports. The first looked at the various technology elements helping anyone to understand the relative strengths and weaknesses of LEOs versus GEOs, i.e. geostationary satellites, which frequency brands being used, the protocols and their adaptation for satellite, architectures, uh, you might hear terms like bent pipe and store and forward, cross-link. Um, we also looked at end-user devices, i.e. user equipment versus, versus gateways. I don't plan to go through all of this on the podcast, but I wanted to share a little introduction, a little bit of, of some of the findings of what we've been talking about in that report. A uh, link to the satellite technology report and the satellite operator and market report will go on the wirelessnoodle.com website. First up, geostationary orbit satellite, geos. Uh, this is what we more traditionally think of as, as satellites. This is largely how communication satellites have worked up until now. Uh, they operate altitudes of 35,786 kilometers in a circular orbit above the equator. 
they remain in a fixed position with speeds that match the Earth's rotation. Uh, because of their distance from Earth, it's possible to cover most of the surface with just three satellites. These geo-satellites also benefit from not needing more expensive tracking antennas because they never move relative to the antenna. So you're always pointing your antenna in exactly the same location. But they're often inconveniently located for devices at higher or lower altitudes due to the required angle to reach the equator. These geos sit above the equator. If you've got a device at the North Pole or the South Pole, often not particularly uh, appropriate. The other main drawback is that the distance from the surface, you know, they're at 35,000 kilometers plus, that increases the latency to the order of 100 to 300 milliseconds, which means that, that two-way communications, including some protocols like TCP IP that require handshakes, are not optimal, although there are workarounds. Major geo constellations include AsiaSat, UTELSAT, Intelstat, and SES. Contrast with LEO, low Earth orbit satellites. Typically, these operate between 160 kilometers and 2,000 kilometers. Now, these satellites are not geostationary. They move around the, the Earth. They have an orbit period, i.e. the time to circle the Earth, of between 84 and 127 minutes. The lower orbit means you need hundreds of them to cover the surface of the Earth with a constant coverage. But the fact that they're not geostationary means that a small number of satellites can actually cover large amounts of the Earth during a 24-hour period, as long as you're happy with non-real-time communications. So these devices move around the Earth and they can then receive signals from devices anywhere. Now, you could have uh, a total global coverage with, as I mentioned, somewhere in the region of 100 uh, satellites, but you don't need to have uh, that uh, in order to support some kind of, of uh, connectivity. There's also medium Earth orbit satellites, MEOs, but let's skip over them for now. LEO satellites are typically significantly smaller and cheaper than geo satellites of the order of 100 kilograms to 400 kilograms versus 1,500 to 7,000 kilograms for geos. And the cost of a LEO is typically around $500,000 compared to $500 million for a geo satellite. And launch costs are also comparatively, comparably higher for geos. Now, to balance that slightly, clearly multiple LEO satellites are required. LEO satellite constellations are also more complex to run. They may require more ground stations, albeit smaller and cheaper ones, in order to receive communications. And the user equipment is sometimes more complex because you need uh, electronically steerable antennas. And often it's more expensive. Another particularly interesting question at the moment is about protocol choices. There are some satellite-specific protocols, but the interesting thing at the moment related to IoT is the use of, in particularly LEOs, traditionally terrestrial technologies for the data link. Cellular technologies like MBIOT, LTM and 5G new radio and two of the low power wide area LPWA technologies developed originally for the license exempt bands in the form of LoRaWAN and Sigfox. Now, the cellular technologies 5G, MBIOT, LTM and so on are standardized by the third generation partnership project 3GPP 
a body which combines the world's major standards development organisations. Its current releases are focused on the evolution of 5G technology. In 2017, it started to examine the potential for integrating satellite into 5G, and the latest release 17 includes some elements that are particularly interesting for, for us, specifically those related to new radio over non-terrestrial networks, i.e. regular 5G new radio for communications and broadband access via satellite, and also IoT over non-terrestrial networks, NTN. This is focused predominantly on satellite, but also includes the likes of ground-to-air connectivity for in-flight connectivity on planes, as well as high-altitude platforms based on balloons and all sorts of other uh, crazy systems. Again, much more in the report on the topic and on the use of LoRaWAN and possibly Sigfox, as well as, as delving into the architectures and device types. Not really enough time on the podcast to talk about it. In a separate report, we dig into some of the commercial aspects associated with LEOs, there's a lot of hype around the Leo market today. Most of the substantial deployments are focused on the broadband market rather than IoT. And those Leo operators with aspirations to address IoT have been relatively slow to deploy networks. There's almost no examples of full constellations having been deployed. The challenges remain significant. There is no certainty there will be sufficiently large market to address to support all of the operators that are aiming to build businesses in satellite communications. In fact, I very much doubt that the dozens of operators who are claiming or planning on deploying LEO constellations will make it even to the deployment phase, uh, but certainly not uh, long term. Doubtless, the additional functionality of the latest generation of LEOs will allow operators to deliver better and cheaper IoT connectivity. But this is shaping up to be a really fiercely contested space with some operators already making the decision not to launch. And this is all in the face of unproven demand. Existing providers connect a few million IoT devices, but with largely stagnant growth. More competition will likely drive down prices, reducing profitability, even if the predicted billions of LEO-connected devices are deployed, we remain sceptical and expect substantial numbers of failures in this LEO space. Finally, uh, last week I talked about some work we'd done on using disruptive technologies for sustainability, i.e. the clean dozen. Uh, plenty of mileage to come from digging deeper into that. I want to talk today about fuel and electricity consumption, which have a direct impact on an enterprise's carbon footprint. There is, it has to be noted, a lot of overlap between energy and fuel consumption. Energy is often generated from burning hydrocarbon fuels, and equally importantly, the consumption of fuel is predominantly done by motor vehicles, which will, over time, shift to becoming electric vehicles. So effectively, you kind of can't think of the two separately. You've got to uh, think about them uh, together. Uh, the ESG impact might change, uh, but it will still be affected by one or other. The extent of that change will depend on how the electricity is generated. If it's generated by nuclear power stations, by wind turbines, by heaven forbid, coal-fired power stations, or indeed diesel generators. So which of our clean dozen solution areas have the biggest impact on those two? Well, fleet operations first. The impact on fuel consumption from such systems can be substantial. I mentioned last week that fleet telematics can reduce fuel consumption by 15% and thus the total cost of running fleet by 
there's also indirect opportunities. Tire pressure monitoring can also have a very positive impact. For instance, preventing the 8% fuel loss that can be as a result of underinflated tires. Higher fuel costs in 2022 will doubtless have focused the attention of many fleet management professionals on realizing these benefits for economic, if not for environmental reasons. Another good example of indirect savings comes from supply chain, which includes a range of solutions where technologies are applied to improve the workings of a transport, logistics and distribution network. There are some direct factors, for instance, container tracking results in 2 to 3% saving on fuel, which I talked about last week. Indirect savings can be even more substantial. For instance, the average company using an inventory management system can make space savings of 20%, resulting in commensurate savings on electricity. Smart cities includes numerous use cases that can provide substantial benefits to cities, including smart streetlights, road traffic control systems, parking space monitoring. I talked last week about how smart street lighting can save cities 20% on their electricity costs. According to the analysis that we've done, that smart city saving can result in between 17 kilograms and 34 kilograms of CO2 savings per streetlight per year. Meanwhile, parking space monitoring such as that implemented by SF Park in San Francisco can reduce fuel consumption in idling and in searching for parking spaces by up to 40%. And traffic monitoring systems can save on average 2% of fuel for every journey across the city. I already mentioned last week that smart public transport can cut full fuel consumption and CO2 emissions by 10 to 15%. Smart buildings are also a critical area. Buildings account for 55% of global energy consumption. So efficiency saving here can have a really global impact. The application of IoT could cut energy consumption by as much as 10%, including a 35 to 40% saving on lighting and a 20 to 25% saving on heating, ventilation and air conditioning. Smart grid, which includes all aspects of grid operations and smart metering, uh, management, transmission and distribution networks and so on, is the other major area where energy saving can have an impact. Smart metering reduces consumption by 3 to 5% for consumers and by 10 to 12% for enterprises. Meanwhile, electricity grid operations can typically reduce electricity lost across the distribution network by 7 to 8%. Added up, these add up to big numbers. Take a look at the report and the Associated Press release for more details, and there's a free sample of the smart building section of the report available to download for free. The link is on the wirelessnoodle.com website. Just a reminder, if you're enjoying the podcast, I'd be obliged if you could leave a review. It is much appreciated. Next week, I'll share how IoT is not all about the data, despite what everyone says. I'll also dig a bit into the metaverse and have a further look into the sustainability report, particularly focused on water savings. Links to some of the research that I've been referring to in this week's show, as well as the transcript of the recording, will be available on the podcast website at wirelessnoodle.com. Thank you for joining me. I've been Matt Hatton, and you've been listening to The Wireless Noodle. Thank you for listening to The Wireless Noodle. If you'd like to learn more about the research that I do on IoT, AI, and more, you can follow me on Twitter at Matty Hatton, and you can check out transformerinsights.com. That's transformer with an A.